0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network, and today's episode focuses on Christian studies. My name is Yakir Englender, your host, and today we will speak on the book, Human Dignity in the Geodeo-Christian Tradition, published in 2019. Our guest today will be Professor John Laughlin, who is the editor of this book, and a scholar at the University of Oxford. Dignity is a fundamental aspect of our lives, yet one we rarely pose to consider. Our understandings of dignity on individual, collective, and philosophical perspectives shape how we think, act, and relate to others. This book offers an historical survey of how dignity has been understood and explores the concept in the Christian tradition. The contributors examine the roots of human dignity in classical Greece and Rome and the scriptures, as well as in the work of theologians such as St. Thomas, Aquinas and others. Further chapters consider dignity within Renaissance art and sacred music. The volume shows that dignity is also a contemporary issue by analyzing situation, where the traditional understanding has been challenged by philosophical and policy development. John, can you share with us a little bit about the reasons and the needs that you felt um, that made you to edit a book about human dignity?
1: Okay, thanks very much. Well, the the book originated as a series of lectures uh, in the University of Oxford, uh, where there had been a big conference about human dignity held under the auspices of the British Academy and the uh, Baroness Hale, who, who... was a member of the, the UK Supreme Court until recently, and uh, Archbishop Nichols, the Catholic Archbishop of Westminster, not Cardinal Nichols, and it was really raising the issue of just exactly what the term means because there there have been a wide variety of interpretations about the meaning of dignity and the idea behind that conference, uh, which resulted in a book edited by Christopher McCrudden. Um, another Belfast professor who was uh, in Oxford at the time, um, was to really present all the opinions uh, about the meaning, and it made a very big book. Uh, And what struck me when I read that book a couple of years ago was precisely that um, there weren't uh, there was were basically no fundamental agreement on the, on the very term itself, so so dignity could be used to justify euthanasia and the dying, or it could be used against those purposes. It could be used to support gay marriage it could be used to argue against gay marriage so so what I thought would be useful would be to try to set out as clearly as possible one position on on the topic, which would be the, the what I call the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, tradition. Um, one of the reviews of the book actually objected to the term Judeo-Christian because they said I didn't really speak much about Judaism. <laughs> In fact, we, we do have a chapter on the old Well, the Bible had the biblical origins of it. Um, So in any case, it was one of the major positions that emerges from this book. You know, this, uh, I'm particular from my own tradition, which is the Catholic tradition, where you have quite a specific understanding of what human dignity is. Um, But also I found rather to my astonishment that there were, me, there were actually positions that were against the very concept of human dignity, that certain authors were arguing against it. They said this is basically a useless concept. Or Stephen Pinker from um, Harvard University, I think, he, he said it's a useless concept. And, and it's a way in which religious people introduce their ideology into ethical debates, uh, as it were, by the back door. I think referring to issues such as abortion uh, and bioethical issues of that kind. So what I thought would be useful in this debate, and really as a way of enhancing the debate, of laying out clearly our uh, positions, our respective positions, but to do so in a critical way, in a self-reflective way, was to uh, invite a number of scholars from that Christian tradition to really deal with a number of subjects uh, about but how they understood human dignity, in order to make it clear what Christians actually mean. Um, And this was uh, then uh, presented in a series of lectures at the Blackfriars Hall Institute, uh, the Las Casas Institute in Blackfriars in Oxford. Um, And most of the chapters were given as lectures initially, and I invited a number of other people who hadn't given lectures to contribute to subjects that hadn't been covered. uh, To this, then, resulted in this book. I should say, our next project in this ongoing human dignity project is um, human dignity and the Islamic tradition, (laughs) and and so this this is the first of a series of books looking at how major religious or philosophical systems regard the question of human dignity. Again, as a way of, of. of dialogue, of understanding, of, of uh, so the... So we're now just putting together a series of lectures in Oxford by Islamic scholars. I yes. hope to will one on the Jewish tradition as well. I think it would be great. I would love. I've one on the, yeah, I would tradition, love. One the Hindu tradition. The yes. So, so it's, it's the beginning, really, of a bigger project, I think, of of mutual understanding between faiths and religions and philosophers. Thank you. Thank
0: you so much. So, John, so now let's start to go to delve into the project itself. Um, We know that human dignity become a very important um, concept um, um, from 1948 um, in the UN Declaration. But actually, the idea of human dignity is from beginning, Um, the beginning, at least in the monotheistic traditions, where in Genesis, um, God said to someone um, let's make, and and um, it's in Hebrew, it's in a plural, let's make a human being, and let's make the human being in our image. Yeah. Um, betzelem Elohim. So can you share with us, for people who do not exactly understand what is human dignity, yeah. a little bit like a short introduction of like why it became so important in 1948, okay. what exactly it means, and then maybe a little bit of an introduction to understand what's happening in Genesis.
1: Okay. Well, I I think the the 1948 is an important turning point because what we need to remember is basically the Second World War, the Nazi regime, and the holocaust <laughs> the, 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 the the genocide against the Jewish people attempted uh, by Hitler, which uh, was such a horrifying event of great evil I, I would call it um, probably the most horrific event of the twentieth century and after the war um, as people came, as, as the the victorious allies and and also many Germans themselves came to understand the uh, the the awfulness of this event that they, they realized they had to really explicitly state that every single human being is of infinite worth and value uh, and has uh, whatever their philosophical conviction and the the, the actual uh, declaration of human rights of which this is the first article on human dignity was was drawn up by a committee of uh, intellectuals and scholars and people from various traditions including atheists as well as Jews Christians even a confucian from china and they realized that they, they couldn't really um uh provide uh, the the content of human dignity because there's so much disagreement, as as you see later came out, uh, about the meaning of dignity. But they did realize that it was such an important concept. They had to put it in, even if they didn't always agree on why it was there. (laughs) They realized it had to be there. And this then became the basis of human rights uh, theory after... Since since 1945, um, the German Constitution, the, 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 the Grundgesetz, which is the basic law of Germany, drawn up in 1949, but then West Germany, but applies now to all of Germany. Uh, also, in its very first article speaks about human dignity, uh, uh, and I think this again is deliberate. Uh, it reflects in the in the group that drew up the that Grundgesetz. Uh, you had Christians, you had socialists, you had Kantians, you had uh, people from various philosophical backgrounds. And once again, it was really this terrible event, series of events of the Second World War and the genocide against Jewish people, along with many other groups as well, was so horrific that they really had to make a very strong statement. And I think even today in Germany, the notion of human dignity, "Würde" in German, is still very, very important. And from then, it was used in several constitutions and uh, several conventions of human rights, and became part of the discourse of, about human rights. Um, but once again, with very, very in interpretations of what it meant, you know. So, so it's just one of one of the, the problems today, I think. But, but I think it was it was so important to have that notion of the absolute uh, value of every single human being of whatever status color creed physical condition <laughs> who comes into the world um, and deserving of the protection of society uh, and I, I would say um, so that so that is context and i i still think the concept is still with us you know, so we're still in many there are many many situations in the world where this has not been respected you think of uh, you know well we had the Soviet Union we had communist China we had Pol Pot we had uh, various regimes in Latin America so it was uh you know' we're, we're human the, the dignity of human life has not been respected so so I think it's still we're still living through trying to find a way of um uh, really, find a, a, a way of living together in which human dignity is one of our absolutes. I think what's dangerous today as well is that there are some philosophers who deny any legitimacy to the notion of human dignity. They say well, human beings are no better than any other animal. <clears throat> that we can just uh, a, a philosophy called preference utilitarianism, which uh, says well, it really depends on. Uh, the utilitarian good and what we actually prefer as individuals as to whether someone should live or not, including children who might be handicapped or older people. So it's it's still a very relevant issue, I think. And if you undermine the concept of human dignity in this way, then you really undermine the basis of law, the basis of human rights, the basis of... uh, Really, the 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 positive advances we've we've made since the Second World War, and our you know, rejection of any kind of Nazi or fascist or communist, Marxist, Leninist kind of position. Um, so, so, so that would be the context. Now, yes. Yeah, so, so, uh, so maybe I, w-
0: I just want to stand here. So, in a way, after the Second World War, Western society, at least. Yeah. um Understood that the assumption that we need to respect and we need to um, not to hurt each other, yeah. the foundations of that yeah. is not there, or it's there but we do not really understand it, and or we do not really um care enough about that, and we we see it in the two world war uh, world wars. Yeah. And then they say, let's declare, let, let's create a declaration that will put it in the focus. Now, then comes the question of what is this thing, right? What is this thing? So Kant, he's, he, he focused a lot about um, human dignity, but from a non-religious point of view. But then we also, the monotheistic relig- religions, we have the... Concept of human dignity, but this concept of human dignity is not standing by itself. Mm. It's standing because, if I understand, that God said that we were created in God's image and therefore there is something uniqueness about um, humanity, right? Yeah. Um, however, some people will say that. From both sides. One, maybe I do not believe in God. So then we need to go to the more philosophical agreement and understanding of. And I would love if you can say something about that. But then your book is focused more on the connection that religious and mostly Christianity is making between us as as, as humans and the fact that we are unique. Because we were created by the image of God, which is interesting because I, I'm not sure how something else cannot be created by the image of God. But maybe you can help us there, too. So can you, can you frame it um, a little bit more?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think the, the Genesis story uh, should probably be placed in a, in a number of contexts. One is the, the context of the Near East and uh, the, the Hebrews and then the Jews uh, lived in the, in the Near Eastern civilization. They were a small group in large Near Eastern civilizations of Syria, Babylon, Egypt. Um, they, they, they're out in Canaan, which was also part of these societies. And I think when you look at the mythology, the creation mythologies of those civilizations, you find um, it's interesting to look at the position of human beings and then compare those mythologies with what the Bible is saying in Genesis. So in those mythologies, uh, very often, human beings are actually of little account. (laughs) They are created by the gods and there's various, a uh, myriad of bits, polytheism, lots of different kinds of gods, uh, who create human beings for their own purposes to be, to be their slaves or their servants or to provide them with food in the temples or to be their playthings, you know, that, that peoples, peoples of the Near East lived in this kind of, uh, under the threat of fate, you know, they didn't, the caprice of the gods they didn't know what was going to happen next. And life was rather sort of, Pessimistic in a way, unless you were in the very upper reaches in which the, the leaders thought of themselves as God, you see. Um, but when you look at, so, 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 that, so Genesis, Genesis was composed, and you know this better than I would, but Genesis was composed after, well, that was put together, edited after the return from the exile in Babylon, and it was the number of different editors, what, what we call the, the priestly editor and the mystic editor, <laughs> so, and then there's another editor. Uh, and, and so, they're, they're, so what, what the editors seem to be doing is taking some of the elements from these Near Eastern mythologies, like the story of the flood, uh, the story of um, the Tower of Babylon, uh, and they're putting them together, but giving them quite a different interpretation. And I think this is really the significance of Genesis. It's not that it takes these stories, therefore they're just myths, uh, but they're taking them in an Reinterpret them in a way that's that's actually quite new and quite unique. What I call it's the biblical breakthrough in our understanding of the human condition. So now, human beings, instead of being simply the playthings of the gods, uh, are made in the Genesis stories, they're made in the image and likeness of God. (laughs) So, in some sense, the all of these mythologies had some idea of the divine spark in human beings, because often they're created through mingling of blood with earth, and so on. And some of the myths, but but now we have uh, the idea that there's just one god. That's one key idea. but not a myriad of gods, and this god creates the world. I think probably out of nothingness. I'm not sure if the creatio ex nihilo is already present in the author's mind, but there's the idea that this one god creates. Uh, the entire world. So the world is not made up of gods themselves. The rocks are not gods, streams are not gods, seas are not gods. But there, there's only one God who creates the world. And within this world, he places human beings, man and women. So in the Bible, there's a and well, a radical equality between men and women as well. So he, he, he creates humanity, uh, in his own image and likeness. And uh, now that has been interpreted in different ways. Some say they were made in God's image by having dominion over the earth. <laughs> he, he gave them dominion over all the, the seas and so on. So that, so that's one idea. Um. But I think what's important here is really this, the, the newness of the conception of man's place in the world. It's, it's, it's just very different from all of the other mythologies that take place. Now, when I say mythology, about the Bible, it's, it's a myth, but not in the sense that this is untrue. It's simply a way of expressing religious truths and a religious understanding. And I think this is what's most remarkable about both the priestly author and the Yahwistic author. Telling the same story in different ways is 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 a it's it's a very new understanding of what what human being is. Uh, so that so that's one idea. Um, now later scholars will reflect: what does being made in the image of God mean? And you you mention it in a sense: the entire world is in the image of God, <laughs> but only in a sense. I think human beings are made in a special sense in the image of God, and. Uh, usually it's seen as the fact that we have reason, that we have freedom, we have free will, we can make choices, etc. Um, now the other story, So, says you have the princely narrative which speaks about creation of this the, 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 the seven days, creation of six days resting on the seventh, then we have the creation of Adam, uh, Eve created out of Adam's ribs, so that, that's all within that. But the Yahuistic narrative is it's telling the same story, but in a different kind of a way. And now we have um, the image of a world, the Garden of Eden, which everything is in harmony, where men and Eve are in harmony, they're harmony with the animals, but also that God walks in the garden with them. So this is the other idea that's coming out, that, that human beings are God's friends. <laughs> That God created them to walk in the garden with them. You can sort of imagine a garden in the Near East with its so palm trees, etc. And, and it's a very, a very positive image of our relationship to God. And once again, this is a breakthrough, I think, uh, in terms of the, the understanding of the human condition. Um, so, uh, so I think this idea, then, this, this is all connected. I think with attempting to bring back, um, uh, well, Judaism then becomes, after the Babylon exile, these authors are presenting this story in a new kind of a way in order to bring uh, the Jewish people back together again and to cohere them in a, in a kind of national consensus, remind them of uh, their the religious faith, which is the faith of monotheism, and to warn them against false gods, the false gods of Canaan, etc. So, so there's all of that going on at the same time. Um, so, I, I, I think I I see it in that sense. And what's interesting about the the rest of the Bible and what we call the Old Testament is that there's very there's very little reference later to to uh, man be made in the image of God. And it's really in the towards the, the just be coming up to the, the Christian era, uh, that we have probably on the influence of Greek philosophy that we find some references in some of the deutro Canonical or the apocryphal books to reference to God. Yeah. But I think it's implicit in many of the Psalms, and these ideas are... The story of the prophets, uh, the the, what the message they're conveying is that you that you were created as people and even as individuals uh, as to be God's friends, and yet you're betraying this, you're going against this, uh, and and that's the other aspect then of of the human condition that's read in the Bible. It's the idea that we 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 are created free with free choices, we can choose uh, evil <laughs> as well as good. This gives us a responsibility. Uh, a so, so John, I I want to
0: to to go um, and and I will suggest that because the book focuses on the Christian tradition, um, um, maybe you can help us to to understand when we read the Bible how the 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 different um a uh, Christian. Um, figures and, and leaders and, and saints that we see in the book, how they understood it. So I, I just try to understand. And again, let's do it only from the Christian tradition. Okay. Um, so we have Adam and Eve, Genesis 1, Genesis 2 depends if they, what was born together or from one to another. And they have Selem Elohim, the image of a God. However, they are not allowed to eat from the tree of knowledge which is interesting because then I try to understand I, I thought that knowledge or reason, if knowledge is reason is, is a thing that they got by having the image of God um, but there is something about the tree of knowledge they are not allowed, so it's like Maybe they are allowed to have, they have the image of God, but they are not allowed to have more of that. So I wonder, because there are two trees that are not allowed to eat from the tree of life mm-hmm. and the tree of of knowledge. So so I just would love to understand that. And then what's happening is that the first, um, I would not say person because it's not a person, but the first um, thing that does not respect the image of of God in humanity in the way that we want to do it is God, because very soon he's going to create, to bring the flood and just destroy all human beings outside of Noah and his family. So I wonder where do, what, what according to the Christian tradition, God teach us by God action about how to respect the image of God.
1: Okay, well, the, the, in the, I think the first uh, of the Christian theologians who really focus on the notion of um, uh, well, apart from the New Testament, the New Testament speaks more about not so much the image of God as Christ is the invisible image of the of the the invisible God, the visible image of the invisible God, and Christians are to imitate Christ. So we are to be made in the image of Christ, which is a, a rather different way of formulating it. But after the, the New Testament era, the first of the Christian theologians mentioned in, in the book by several of the authors is Irenaeus <coughs> of Lyon. And Irenaeus of Lyon was a Greek-speaking bishop who lived in Lugdunum, which is modern Lyon, uh, which is, you have to remember this is the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire, uh, the elites of the Roman Empire spoke Greek, uh, as well as Latin in the West. So so the Bible they would have read was the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, rather than the Hebrew. So when they're looking at a, a text like Image and likeness, they read it in Greek and not in Hebrew. And I'm not a scripture scholar, but if you look in the book of John Day, who wrote that chapter, has a good explanation of the linguistic aspects of this. But basically, um, I think in Hebrew, um, image and likeness are synonyms. They're just a a Hebrew literary method of, of simply repeating the same idea, but there's no conceptual difference often between the, the, the two terms uh, and so image and image simply means likeness and likeness simply means image in hebrew but in greek there's, there is uh, a linguistic difference and i think irenaeus picked up on the difference and he distinguished between image and likeness and what he said was that we are made in the image of god which we can never lose. We can never lose God's image. If we lose God's image, we cease to be human beings. We become like beasts. (laughs) Uh, Now, interesting for Irenaeus, our bodilyness, is also part of the image of God. (laughs) Uh, But uh, the context there is his struggle with the Gnostics who thought the body was evil and matter was evil and sex was evil. So Christianity has never taught this, actually. Um, So... But on the other hand, although we can't lose the image, we've lost the likeness. Now, what is the likeness? Well, the likeness is um, behaving and acting like God. So, so God and God is a God of love, a God of uh, forgiveness, etc. Um, I know. It's, I think it's difficult, maybe looking at some of the texts of the Old Testament to see God in that light. But I. I mm. I think the, the the message of the prophets that they're getting across is that God God is both a demanding God; He demands our love and our respect. Uh, at the same time, we must accept the consequences of our actions. So we are free; we can fail. We and so this so this notion of the fall is also important. The notion of the fall of sin of human wretchedness. Okay, and that's why. The fathers and like Irenaeus, and subsequently they distinguish in the glory of, of the human being, Irenaeus praise in that was gloria dei vivens hominis, the glory of God is man fully alive, so it's a translation, but on the other hand we're also aware of the miseria, and so the Bible often speaks about man's misery and man's sinfulness, and God must punish us for for our sins, uh, and perhaps doing it in a rather exaggerated way <laughs> at times, but nevertheless, that's the human condition is composed of these two ideas. so so Irenaeus then says we we, we we do retain the image, can never lose the image, and which is, I think a very important idea in Christian anthropology because it, it's saying that every single human being still has God's image whatever that person's condition. So this is one of the powerful, it was a very new idea actually in Greek society because not everyone had the same dignitas. Uh, so dignitas varied according to your social status, according to your condition, whether you're a slave or not, etc. Et now what Christianity brought was this radical idea that we are, every single person is made in God's image. can't lose. But the likeness then is the the idea that we are fallen creatures, we have lost the likeness, but we can recover it. We can actually uh become more like God and on a Christian perspective. It's you become more like Christ, because Christ is the image of the of the living God. So the more like Christ we've become, the more we return to that likeness which we lost at the fall. And and the the Christian fathers and the early centuries they, they actually formulated a whole theology of a myst- almost a mystical theology of um, the return to God. And sometimes this is mixed with neoplatonic ideas of, you know, the, the, the idea of the or which creates matter and we are sort of at the lower levels of the matter and we return to the one. I said, so sometimes these ideas are, are used as perhaps a way of getting across the idea to the, to the, 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 the Greek or Roman society of those centuries but that, that's the basic idea then that, that we now and, and i what i what i did in the book in my, in my own chapter in the book was to try to trace this notion right through right up to the renaissance and even into the modern period where image and likeness are central to the whole work of renaissance humanism for example as as well as medieval mystical theology and there's a, a deep continuity between them um I think the break comes with the Reformation, actually. I don't know if you want to speak about that now, but, but Luther and Calvin uh, both disagreed with Irenaeus, and they thought we had lost the image as well as the likeness. <laughs> so the so the Calvinist doctrine of the utter depravity of human beings really come, begins then, you know, which is a very different kind of, these are very different kind of anthropology. In fact, you know, that this, the notion of the human condition is somewhat, we I mean, had to be totally remade from about which is very different from the medieval Catholic idea of, say, St. Thomas Aquinas, where grace can build on nature. So nature itself is not completely obliterated, but we can actually build on nature, uh, correcting the sinful aspects of nature through virtue. But, uh, Nevertheless, nature is itself good. Uh, so, so that's so I think this is how the Bible then was used in our Western Christian tradition, um, as lots in our Eastern the, the, the Orthodox, Byzantine tradition would share that. Um, and I, I think it, it it is really at the root of our modern Western conceptions of. Of human rights and uh, the equality of uh, the radical equality of all human beings, whatever their condition. Uh, by the way, I think Kant actually was also within that tradition, in a way. So I think he, he he had a different philosophical understanding, but he was a believer. He was a Christian. He was a Lutheran, and I think his uh, I think modern uh, neo-Kantian philosophers actually. Um, have moved away from Kant because they 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 they, they neglect or, or reject that sort of transcendental background within which Kant is writing. But I mean that's another another issue. For, 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 you. you see the, I think you can see the kind of pattern that it remained right through those early um, centuries right up to the Renaissance, and I think the Reformation is the first break with that consensus. And, yeah. So maybe before we go to the Reformation, I want to 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 stay a little bit in uh,
0: at the beginning. Um, so if I understand, we have actually two two um, different um, subjects or different elements. We have the image of God, or in Hebrew, bezelem, and then we have the likeness. That we are we have made in the lake, in the, Dumut, yeah. the email yes and um i I agree that um I, I totally see the point it's so important what you bring about the distinction between the two. In the Christian tradition, so I just want to make sure that I understand. So the image of God is something that we all were born with, and we cannot lose. It doesn't matter what happened. Doesn't matter if we sin, and in that way, it's different than the Hellenistic or the Roman Empire when we have um, we we have the use of different um, that people are born in different um, um, social not character but yes exactly like we have men and women and in what we will call in in um in the academic world more like an honors honor society yeah. Yeah. right honor society where we have this distinction um and 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 what christianity actually says is to say that every human being has an image of God's Selim and therefore you cannot take it. Mm-hmm. However there is something and in that way, this will be what we will call in 1948, dignity, in the meaning that we cannot lose it. And it doesn't matter if you are Christian, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, whatever. Then we have the likeness of God, which is something that you need to try to pursue. Not, you need to try to get it. But it's not something that you have to gain in order that we, you need to be protected. Yeah yeah it's true okay so, mm-hmm. and, and then, can you help me to understand so how during Christian history in that way and and again, we are before the Reformation, how we have slaves, how we behave with women in ways that definitely are not what I do not respect their dignity, how we kill How we go towards not for survivor, but what's a a Christian theology around that? Yeah.
1: Uh, Well, I I think it's a very good question. And I think one of the problems in tackling it is that quite often we approach some of these historical issues through the lens of modern ideological debates. (laughs) So if you want to look, for example, Mm -hmm. at the Crusades, uh, we're very much influenced by the anti. Christian anti-clerical um, perspective of the 18th and 19th century <laughs> of the Enlightenment and then of, you know, of atheists or positivists or socialists, uh, commentators and historians. Um, I, th- I think, but nevertheless, having said that, I do think there are there are questions to be asked and answered about to what extent has Christianity lived up to those um, Ideals that were set forward, and let's take slavery for example. Um, St. Paul, as good as well, uh, a good starting point, I think, where St. Paul says we are we are all we're neither Jew nor Greek, nor Christian, nor free man or slave, nor man or woman. We are all one in Christ. But at the same time, he says, "Well, um, if you're a slave, obey your master, <laughs> because God will." uh reward you for doing that. Actually. Um so it seems to me what happens is that we, we sometimes find a principle enunciated like this radical equality of all people, but it might take many centuries for it to be uh fully realized. And I think Christianity like any other religion uh will become part of an institutionalized society. And I think the society it went out into, uh, which is the Hellenistic Society of the the late Roman Empire, um, was a society where, as you mentioned, dignitas meant your status and social standing within a hierarchical system. Right and and where everyone was simply not equal, you had the, the notion of the pater familias uh, where the father of the family had absolute power over all the members of his family um, but nevertheless i I think what what I would argue what maybe Christian apologists would argue is that there was um a gradual transformation of many of the those customs that had been prevalent within the, pa- the pagan society that before it became Christian, and the Christianity in fact did raise many groups to higher status. For example, mm-hmm. um, well, go back to Jesus himself. I mean, Jesus spoke to women. <laughs> we look at the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke yeah. mentions women very often in the Gospel. I mean, Luke was not mm-hmm. not from a Jewish background; he's from a Hellenistic background, but mm-hmm. he he knew the question very well, and he emphasizes. All of those aspects in which women are, um, uh, regarded, treated as, as human beings, fully, fully human beings. And, um, Paul had many female followers and sometimes women are tasked with bringing messages to other communities, which is normally the position of men. So, so you do find that uh, there's, there's a, the, this seed is sowing of radical equality, uh, but it, it it will take time as a kind of leaven to transform the society in which it's found. And I think it's interesting if you look at, for example, the history of the monastic life and the rule of St. Benedict. You know, St. Benedict um, formed his rule at the end of the 4th century, I think, 380 or something like that. Uh, and in, in the rule, he says... He's talking about the, the order of seniority within the community. And he says, the, the, the order of seniority will be determined by the, the moment you enter the community. Right Now, I mean, if a slave enters the community uh, a minute before the, the nobleman, he then is, is senior <laughs> in, in the hierarchical order. So there's a, 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 a radical equality there. Many of the fathers of the church, uh, Gregory Nazianzen, for example, will rail against slavery, um, and they, you know, so there was a consciousness of you know, the, the evils of slavery. Um, I think probably at the same time there was also uh, the idea that, well, um, how do we get rid of it? You know, it's, it's, it's the way our society functions. So how do we actually get rid of this? And uh, I do think many. Christian didn't wish to get rid of it, and in fact, in the end, in the 19th century, the, 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 the slave black population in the states—it's it's Christians like Wilberforce who are at the forefront of of, of of you know abolishing slavery. Um, well, interestingly, Napoleon, who is the hero of the French Revolution, actually returns to Haiti to restore slavery after it had been abolished by the revolution. <laughs> See, so, so. I would say it in those kinds of terms, I, th- I think it's easy enough to look at the past and uh, through this lens of a certain ideology or a certain set of prejudices and find what you want. But I, 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 it seems to me that Christianity has slowly permeated our consciousness and has raised all kinds of groups of people, because it is a universal, a radically universal cosmopolitan religion. and. Not a nationalist type of religion, um, and every single human being within that kind of black, white, uh, whatever their background, is regarded as equal. So I don't know if that answers the question, but it, but it does seem to me that we do need to have that kind of historical perspective of, of, of evolution, and and today, then I would say in the Catholic Church, it's I mean so these principles are really pretty radically um uh, uh, accepted um women i think is also uh, the, the question of women and gender issues is um i, I think it's an interesting one because i, th- I think equality doesn't mean uniformity <laughs> so, so um Equality as as different kinds of people. So men and women are different. I think is what the church would say today, and most most of the. Um, but
0: they are not different in the fact that they were created with the image of God. Right? They are not different. Yet.
1: Exactly. They're, well, they ex- women are made in God's image, and as men are, but they're made. They are different uh, in terms of their gender. <laughs> God made two genders; He made men and women, and they they exist in a, a mutual uh, relationship. And and I, th- I think the Bible, but 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 again,
0: I just try to understand. A bit, maybe because you know, because I'm not coming from the Christian tradition, so there is a fundamental thing which is beyond everything, right? Which is the fact that we all were created in the image of God. So the gender is less important than that. It's like the the foundation is that we all equal um, in the image of God. So whatever the image of God is, which I would love if you can go explain us a little bit more about where we are today. What is the image of God? What is exactly... And then after that, we can start saying, like, okay, but we are also different, which totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But, but we are different. But if I understand what is the image of God that we are equal, yeah. so then I can say, yeah. maybe I am different, but I want something else. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, many, a lot of dialogue will open, mm-hmm. but I wonder what is the thing that we are not allowed to touch according to the Christian tradition today. Because this is where I don't need to report anyone, I don't, other than the divine, because I was created in the image of God, end of the story, point. So I wonder what is this thing? Well,
1: I think think really that fundamental thing is that every single human life is sacred. So every single human life is sacred. That it's, but it's given to us by God. God gives us life, and uh, we do not possess our own lives. (laughs) The modern idea of possessive individualism means I, I I own myself. I am. I own my body. I own my part. I can sell my hand if I want to make money. Uh, Now, now, I think the Christian idea, and I think the Jewish idea is that our lives are gifts from God, right, so which cannot be desecrated uh, in any way, and we don't have absolute autonomy over our own lives, Uh, which I think is a very prevalent idea we'll come on to later. So I think both men and women share that fundamental idea that their lives, whether as a man or as a woman, Is equal in the sense that their lives are absolutely sacred, and that they cannot be desecrated uh, uh, through any through slavery or through any other. So the other aspect of 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 image of God, I think, which is important, is well traditionally thought of reason as one that we are. We are. This is the Cicero idea that we we rise above the animals who are reason, you know, and we we. But we must exercise our reason we mustn't be lazy we must act virtuously we must uh, really understand the world we have a reason for a purpose which is to to know God to understand God to seek God as well so that's one idea yeah you know, and men and women both have that so, so and even within the Christian tradition women have been regard have been made doctors of the church you know, some of the female uh, Saints have become doctors, or in other words, teachers, and because they have this knowledge. now, the other key idea is uh freedom that God made us free. And we go back to those stories in the Bible, and I think that's the significance of the story in the Garden of Eden it's that that we made a even then Adam made a free choice to disobey God. Mm-hmm. So, we are so that gives us a kind of radical freedom, we can actually choose what is evil or or choose to turn away from God but then we must bear the consequences. Now both men and women have that as well so there's a radical equality. It was Eve who made the first choice but Adam made the second choice (laughs) so they both chose so they're both equal. Um, And I I think it's that that idea that um, reason and freedom our reason and will are closely connected. So the word in the Middle Ages they used was liberum arbitrium, so free will is liberum. So arbitrium is uh, weighing up or arbitrating or choosing, um, uh, which means we use our reason to weigh up, but liberum is the act of the will where we make the choice. So so they both go together. Now both men and women have this. I think this is the, the principle, for the theory. Now that will manifest itself in many ways, depending on the society. So, so you have societies maybe where women have a certain status, uh, which is uh, maybe uh, sociologically inferior to men in some ways. Um, I don't know. Do, do we try to make men, women into have the same rules as men? Is there a is, is that a good way of doing it so we could say in our western societies women are occupying more and more male roles <laughs> are they fulfilling their potential then as uh, as full human beings uh, in that way so so it's I think it's a complicated issue and I, I think there's argument there for well, gender is is gender a social construct or is it based on biology
0: so I want to go to more fundamental, if it's okay. And I want to because it's the debate that we have in the Jewish tradition. So you can help me as a as a Christian scholar. Like um, let let's go to very basic. So for example, in Israel, and I will give you a, just a short introduction. We don't have a constitution. Yeah. For many reasons, we don't have. But one of the things that's the the um, the highest. Uh, um, courts, have made that they wrote some what we call fundamental laws. And one of them is, and here it's interesting, is human kavod. Now, the question is, what is kavod? So here we debate, because some people interpret kavod as human dignity, because kavod is dignity in Hebrew. Some interpret it as honor. Mm -hmm because kavod is also honor. It's also respect and it's also glory. It's complicated in Hebrew. However, one of the places where we have a contradiction is that in Israel, um, the only way to divorce, for example, is according to the rabbinic court, which means that in this place, the Jewish orthodox law is the foundation it's is the only way how israel function among jews if you're jewish now come the issue that if israel believe in human dignity it's a contradiction with the fact that woman who is beaten by her husband for 10 years still need to get divorced only by the jewish orthodox law mm-hmm which means that only the husband can divorce if he want, and it creates huge mess. This is, for me, as a scholar, it's a contradiction, yeah. because we speak about human dignity, and then something, other thing ha- happened that fundamentally, I think we all agree that a woman who is beaten should not be with her husband. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't I cannot understand dignity otherwise, right? So I wonder if you can take maybe this example or another example. Where's uh, the Christian world today fundamentally in um, contradiction? Like and again, not if it's a critique, you know, as you said, it's something that it's a process. Yeah. We grow into that and we need to change ourselves. But where are the places where you can say there is contradiction between how the Christian life or christian rule is understand but then dignity because uh, be, yes because it's very fundamental uh
1: yeah uh, that's a very good question um i i think in, with, from the christian perspective um i think first of all we need to return to the the the, the gospel <laughs> where jesus elevated the position of women uh both in regard to jewish society then and with regard to greco um, Roman society um by treating women as fully human beings, he also uh said, "I think in those days only a woman could commit adultery, but not a man <laughs> whereas what he what Jesus said is if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery with her. Now I might be wrong enough, but I think so he's putting Men and women on the same footing there, and I think this this really is uh, very important within the Christian tradition. And in Christian marriage, um, there must be um, consent, uh, free consent between the man and the woman. So the woman must consent as much as the man. So the notion of arranged marriages or forced marriages is out. Now, within the Catholic tradition, um, and in all of the Christian traditions until recently, divorce was not possible. <laughs> once it, once a marriage took place, it, it, uh, it couldn't be broken because Jesus, if you like, had a literalist understanding of what, what God has put together, man shall not put asunder. So, so he was a kind of a fundamentalist in that regard. Um, so, so, um, but nevertheless, I think within the Christian tradition, if, um, even within the Catholic tradition today, if a woman has been abused by her husband, she has every right to leave him. Okay. She, she, she hasn't, she's not, she's not forced to stay with an abusive husband. And it may have been at certain times in the past, in certain societies, this was perhaps taught by some, some of the authorities, but, um, I think that was that reflected more the general society than the teaching of the church I think the church is quite clear now that a, a woman should not be forced to stay with her husband the question of divorce is a bit more complicated because as I mentioned in catholicism divorce is impossible <laughs> in the secular sense that because it
0: but, but it's not contradict I, it I I just want to understand the the simple, in a, in, a, in a it's not contradicts the human dignity that uh, the, the fact that we were created in the image of God, if a woman cannot have free wisdom.
1: Well, I, I think have. it does. Right? I, uh, I think a woman yes. is, as I mentioned earlier, I think uh, digni- for us, dignity is composed of reason and freedom. So you must have both together, le li- and arbitrium, mm-hmm. and dignity in that radical sense and which every human being is is has dignity, and I think a, a, a woman uh, does have the dignity of making the choice that a woman could not be coerced into staying together with her husband, who is treating her in a way that's infringing uh, her dignity as a human being. In this. And the same goes for. Children, I mean, if, if children are being abused in a way, then it's, you know, it's uh, the, the authorities have every right to take them away from the parent or the parents who are doing that. So, so I think the principle is actually there quite, quite clearly. Um, and I, 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 I don't know what Jewish law is in, in Israel, uh, but it's that, that's, I think, how a Christian was said today that in fact a, a woman should not be forced to stay with an abusive husband.
0: Thank you. So, um, so where are the places? Um, I, I wonder if you, we can go back now to the Reformation, okay. and if you can teach us a little bit what happened there. That in a way there are that they, they speak about that we lost this b'tzelem Elohim, this image yeah. of God. Um, yeah,
1: I, I think partly what's behind it is that. Um, I think partly to understand the Reformation, you need to go back, take a step back and look at the, the the humanist Renaissance. And the humanist Renaissance is very much about um language. And during this period from 14th up to the sixteenth century, there was a great rediscovery of the languages of the Bible. So so Hebrew was rediscovered, I mean rediscovered by, by Christian scholars. Um, Erasmus was, had learned Hebrew, he had learned, um, he, he knew Greek, he translated the, the, the New Testament from, from Greek into, into Latin, uh, revising the Latin traditions, uh, and there was also a desire to have the, the, the Bible in the vernacular, in the, the language of the people of this, so they could understand it. Now, Luther, although he, he rejected the, the humanism of the Renaissance. He was very much influenced by this linguistic turn, and he returned to the, the Hebrew Bible rather than the Septuagint, both of which he knew. I mean, Luther was a great scholar, and and I, I think in, in the um, the Protestant tradition, another principle was sola scriptura. So, so they go back to the original sources of the Bible, and therefore the. They tended to reject then people like Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria and these people that they called Hellenizers, that they thought were introducing foreign Greek philosophical elements into the, the pure scriptures. So we have the pure purity of the Bible, and then we have these Hellenizers who are sometimes historians. So when they looked at that text, image and likeness, um, and the fall, Luther Argued that in fact we, we, we also lost the fall because image and likeness are simply synonyms in Hebrew. (laughs) I think this this would be the kind of understand, this is my understanding of it, that, that he, there's no, there's basically this distinction is an artificial one introduced because of the Septuagint and the Greek language by Iron S. But in fact in Hebrew, there's one as the other. And if you lose one, you lose the other. So, um, also, Luther was—he um, was an Augustinian friar, so he called St. Augustine. St. Augustine sometimes has quite radical uh, notions about original sin, for example. Some say that he invented the, the theological concept of, of original sin, and Lutheranism then was very much conscious of what I call the misery tradition. <laughs> so we have human beings as Gloria and also as Miseria. So. The humanists were were emphasizing the gloria uh, without forgetting the miseria, while Luther was much more conscious of the miseria as opposed to the gloria. They could get the gloria, but they would have to remake our humanity totally from without, Christ has to come from without through grace and remake us completely into new human beings. Um, and Calvin, I think, followed in this line and the other reformers very similar. Well, Calvin uh, was actually much more of a humanist in a sense. He, when he was young, he, he uh, edited the text by Seneca, for example, as was where the Latin. Um, so, but I, I think this this idea of utter depravity and losing the image as well as the likeness um, had really quite profound social, political, anthropological consequences because it's really a very different anthropology uh, from what medieval the medieval church had had developed and and for example he would. Uh, um, he, he thought that the, the, the so many theological concepts involved but he thought that the church, um, was simply the invisible body of believers. So the institutional church was rather downplayed by Lutheran. And many, many of the activities of what we, the institutional church that had been carried out in the medieval period by monasteries and hospices and hospitals were now handed over to the state. So the state became the the instrument by which God can punish sinners and et cetera. So so and the church in the Lutheran conception been rather subservient to the state, and and I think he he thought that you know because of our human depravity, then we shouldn't uh, be surprised that the state sometimes takes harsh measures. Now his own railing against the the Anabaptists and the the, the radical Protestant revolutionaries show really quite violent language that he uses against them because they're upsetting the, the traditional order. So so that's one way of thinking about the Reformation and how we understand this, um, this distinction between, between image and likeness. Now, Later scholars such as Karl Barth and Emil Brunner also followed that Lutheran idea, um, I think, uh, even even further um, on the other hand and in the book uh, John Witter who's a chapter on the Reformation he points out the fact another reason of the Reformation is to say well the Reformation also brought in notions such as democracy, freedom, rights, and, and surely the beginning of that modern understanding of our humanity, which is much more, but also a more individualistic one, I think. You know, that that's the notion of the individual is, is, is sort of standing out now. And in our, in our democratic systems, everyone has the right to vote, whereas in the medieval corporate system, there was a much, much, a very different way of understanding. Uh, how society should be organized. So, so, it, so the Reformation is a crucial turning point, I think, in our understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, I think um, the other, maybe more nefarious consequence of the Reformation was sparking the Wars of Religion in the Holy Roman Empire and France and other places. Mm-hmm. Um, where I come from, Belfast, we, we, we've been living as <laughs> we've never really gone beyond that. And so uh, um, but what, what the, the impact that then the, the unintended consequences? One author put it, of the Reformation was to usher in a secularist type of society. As yeah. intellectuals in the Enlightenment then uh, began to reject reveal religion, reject the Bible, reject Christianity, reject Jesus. Um, and they tried to although they, they didn't become atheists straight away, they were much more probably deists or deists, you know, they, they believed in God, but they thought that God had created the world and set it on its course and then didn't intervene in it. It's quite suited then. Mm-hmm. They want they were in charge of it, you see, that we are in charge. And in the eighteenth century then very few atheists actually, David Hume perhaps was one. Hobbes, maybe another in the seventeenth century, uh, but it's really in the nineteenth century atheism as such becomes more more important. But nevertheless, you find here a, 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 a rapid um, secularization of our political, social institutions that will have important consequences, and therefore maybe a new. Uh, need to find a justification for the notion of human dignity (laughs) Mm -hmm. image and likeness of God uh, Mm -hmm. how do we justify and there's where of course Kant then comes in, he's one of the first really to treat human dignity explicitly uh, Mm -hmm. and try to find uh, a more rational way of understanding, it doesn't appeal to revelation and and the notion of God we're made in the image and likeness of God but so, so he uses the idea of um, uh, well, in German, it's Würde worth, and if you think, what is the worth of a human being? And he argues that human beings um, cannot be measured against other human beings uh, you know, in a market-type situation. So you can have, you know, three sheep equals one cow, and you can weigh them up and their their relative value for each other. But he said a human being is literally priceless. The human being. Cannot uh, be measured in this way. He also said that um, the, we should not treat human being as a, an end, uh, as a means, but only as an end. You know. So that's the famous law of humanity, which he formulated. Um, and then the third idea coming from Kant, which is important, is the notion of autonomy. So for Kant, mm-hmm. human dignity. Equals autonomy, okay. but it's not the autonomy to do anything you like. It's not a libertinism. But it's, again, there's notion freedom, but that you're free to choose uh, a universal law that is defined by reason. <laughs> that we use our freedom to accept this universal law. So, so. But I, I think what's important in this whole period is is that the, the Judeo-Christian foundation of um, our Western understanding of the human condition begins to be marginalized, pushed to one side, and is um, even denigrated, you know, sort of say it's mocked and it's derided. It's, uh, Voltaire is probably the, the, the greatest mocker in that sense. Then uh, I mean, we the 19th century with. Uh, you know, Marxism uh, begins to develop, uh, Darwinism, theory of evolution, um, social Darwinism later, and all of that is sort of undermining, really, that Judeo-Christian foundation that had really been the foundation of Western society up until at least the Enlightenment. I would say.
0: So thank you so much. So my last question, John, is is um when you think now about the future in the Christian tradition, um, how much, since dignity means so many things and it's it's from, it's also in a way even holding contradiction thing, yeah. um, I wonder how much do you think as a scholar that we should emphasize um, and should keep working with the term dignity or it's become a term that holds too much. That in a way, it's better to use something else.
1: Yeah, it's a, good, a very good question. Um, I would be very reluctant to to throw it overboard, <laughs> because I think it is a term that is um, embedded in our human rights conventions. Uh, it's embedded in our. Um, constitutions of, of certain states and even in the, your non constitution. You know, Britain also has no constitution and someone once said the British constitution is not worth the paper that it's not written on. <laughs> I don't know hmm. the Israeli constitution. But but I, I but I think the idea I, I think we should not abandon the term. <laughs> I think what we do need to do is clarify its meaning much more much more fully. And I think I think the book does do this actually? Be, it begins the process of really reflecting on these competing ideas, and and the, then the question we ask is, uh, which of these competing ideas is more, more, or most conducive to human flourishing? And I think what we what we really should be looking for is are the conditions in which every single human being, whatever their race, color, creed, condition. How can they function most fully as human? Because uh, as a Christian, I believe this is why God put us on earth. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't put us here to punish us. He put us here to allow us to live, Gloria de Dei homo, the glory of God as man fully alive. And I do think there are conceptions of human dignity that go against this flourishing. I think uh, they're quite dangerous, in fact. I think they undermine our uh, notion of humanity, you know, we can't really define what humanity is. We can't we denigrate humanity as such. And we even hear voices saying, human beings are a plague on the earth. <laughs> human beings are a scourge on the planet. We should get rid of them. We have these ridiculous movements like the no birther movement, etc., cetera, uh, for maybe good intentions, but rather mindless, I think. Um, and so we need to really... Confront these ideas, confront these which are which are gaining widespread influence through the media through, in our legal systems in our policy making systems etc, in a vigorous debate uh, all coming down to the question is how can we uh, ensure that every single human being born on the planet will flourish and realize to the full their potentiality as human beings in all areas you know that's in the area of the intellect, their mind their culture their etc etc say so so I think we should keep the term but keep the debate going about its meaning
0: so important wow thank you so much thank you for editing human dignity in the Jewish judeo-christian tradition it was a pleasure to have you here thank you